The infrastructure spending bill enacted earlier this year includes $7.5 billion to install chargers for electric cars. In response, the Energy and Transportation Departments set up a joint office. For what the office will do and how it will do it, we turn to its newly appointed director, Gabe Klein. Mr. Klein, good to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. What is this office designed to do? Distribute the $7.5 billion to localities or figure out where the charging stations should go yourself? The Joint Office of Energy and Transportation is really a collaboration of the U.S. Department of Energy and the U.S. DOT, as you cited, and also has quite a bit of interaction with the White House. It was created through the bipartisan infrastructure law. You know, I would say that we have a hand in creating quite a bit of the policy, providing technical assistance, and supporting all the different agencies. And that actually includes the EPA with their school bus program, which is $5 billion, and the $5.6 billion that the FTA has for uh, NOLO Transit. So, um, you know, this is the beginning. I think it's going to grow and evolve. But our mission fundamentally is to accelerate, you know, affordable, convenient, equitable, reliable and safe electrified transportation and also to create great jobs in the communities where the stations go. And the stations then you're aiming at with this particular spending channel is for public transportation, like electric buses and that kind of thing? I mean, it's all of the above. When you are building basically a new economy, and let's be honest, we have been operating on a fossil fuel-based economy for the last 100-plus years, and now we're talking about you know, reinventing the economy around renewable energy, around solar and wind. That means the, one of the most visible ways that people are going to see that tangibly in their lives is through transportation. Now, that transportation could be goods and services coming to their homes, whether it's long-haul transportation on the highways whether it's last mile to their homes from Amazon or Walmart or a local store, but it also means electrifying their lives and the ability for them to charge at their home and then charge on the highway and then charge on a city block or in a city garage. So it's really all of the above. It's very multimodal and we want to create a great economy. We want to create clean air and create opportunities for people to be upwardly mobile, which means providing them actual mobility, not just electrification. Well, just a quick practical question that I have. If someone drives somewhere and there's a charging station for their electric car, who pays for the electricity in that? The taxpayers or do you put a credit card in the in the thing? Well, this is a great question. I mean, I think what people need to realize is that the private sector is going to build all of this, right? And so this $5 billion initially for the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program is a formula program. So that money goes straight to the states and every 50 miles and not more than one mile from from designated electric vehicle charging corridors, you have to have four ports of 150 kilowatts, which is DC fast charging, which is what you want for that use case on the highway. And so the private sector and the public sector will come together at the state level, at the city level in some cases, and figure out how they want to charge for it. It needs to be interoperable. We need to have certain data standards. So, you know, a lot of what the Joint Office is doing, working with federal highways over at DOT, with offices in in the U.S. Department of Energy, is working on the rulemaking and what those basic standards are around information gathering, data sharing, interoperability, having a open but unified payment system so that people can consistently know how they're going to pay and what they're going to pay as they travel and so, you know, we're, we're providing guidance and standards, and then the states have to actually implement. And much of this will be done in partnership with the, with the private sector. 
And by the way, when it comes to electric cars, does the same plug go into you know one brand that also fits the other brand? Do they have they agreed on that that industry? Great question. I mean, there are a couple different plugs. Uh, some people have the you know CCS plug. There's the uh, Chatmo plug, and some of them are you know more prevalent in one country or or another. Uh, and then there's of course Tesla's uh, pr- proprietary plug. And so we want to have interoperability so that when somebody approaches a charger, they have the ability to plug their vehicle in, whether it's a truck, a car, or something else. In a city, it might be a bike or a scooter. But we want to make sure that everybody's got access to those chargers, regardless of the country of origin that their vehicle is from. So you might have to have an adapter you know, if, if you're driving around. All that is being sort of figured out as we speak. And uh, we're getting a lot of input. Uh, we've gotten hundreds of comments. And there's a proposed rulemaking, actually, that we're uh, working on right now with our friends at at Federal Highways and uh, answering those questions. We're speaking with Gabe Klein. He's director of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. And just give us a sense of how many people are tasked to the office and are they full-time there? Are they coming from other agencies? How does this all work and what's your schedule for getting this work done? We already have a strong staff in place uh, and it's comprised of new federal hires, We've got experts from USDOT, USDOE, from our lab partners like NREL, Idaho National Labs, and Volpe Institute. So we're going to continue to add staff. Some of them will be federal employees. Some of them will be consultants and contractors. But we want the best and the brightest. And people can go to driveelectric.gov and see new postings uh, on a regular basis. In terms of our schedule, so NEVI's a five-year program. The Joint Office has been providing technical assistance to the states Uh, since its launch earlier this year. And in that time, we've actually helped all 50 states plus D.C., where I'm sitting, and uh, Puerto Rico to develop their state EV deployment plans. All of these were approved, actually, by September 27th. And what that did was unlock the FY22 and now FY23 dollars. So in some ways, the the states now are going to have two years of funding to start spending next year. It's very, very exciting. And I've been looking at the plans, and a lot of them have very aggressive timelines and plans to start rolling out stations even by the end of next year. And you're something of an unusual cat. You seem to know your way around Washington pretty good, but you just arrived to D.C. from a city-level job. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm actually more of a private sector um, person in terms of my career. I've got about, geez, 27 years, I guess, of experience. And I did have two uh, government jobs. I ran the Washington, D.C. Department of Transportation, which from the standpoint of the federal government is a state, but obviously also a city. Um, So I dealt directly with federal highways and and USDOT. And then I ran the Chicago Department of Transportation, which is a city, but a very, very large city, very, very complex. Those were both great jobs and great preparation for something like this. I did serve on the Biden-Harris transition team, the agency review team for transportation, and got to help formulate some of the policy that went into not this office in particular, but electrification. And so it's, it's really an honor to do this. It's such an important mission. I'm somebody that really came from a transportation background, but care about climate and sustainability and climate equity a lot. And so this gives me the opportunity to serve the public in that charge. And let me just ask you this, from what I've been able to see so far, these electric cars, because they're expensive, are sort of virtue baubles for rich suburbanites. Do you think that's going to change anytime soon so that people can afford them and they won't have to jack up the price 
to meet the fact that there's a big tax subsidy for them. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, once we hit a certain scale and a tipping point, which will probably be around 2025, then the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is going to be the same or probably cheaper at that point. I'm on my second electric car. I also have a fleet of electric bikes. I can tell you I've never had either of my electric cars in for maintenance. They're just much lower maintenance and operating costs. But soon I think we'll have price parity from the jump without subsidies because they're actually a simpler vehicle. Um, the president you know, made the announcement yesterday, uh, the $2.8 billion for battery uh, uh, supply chain grants. That's going to make a huge difference because the cost of the battery is a, is a you know, outsized uh, portion of the cost of the vehicle. And so I think within three years, um, you're going to see a huge difference. And the fossil fuel combustion you know, powered vehicle is going to be outmoded and looked at as old technology. Gabe Klein is director of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Charge your phone with the Federal Drive. Subscribe to the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, 
um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy 5 or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.